0: Of course, it's good to see you all today, and I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles as we continue our series in the book of Judges, and we're going to be in the third chapter of the book of Judges today. It's Judges chapter 3, verses 12 and following. We're actually going to be looking at the second judge. The first judge was Othniel, and I'll reference him momentarily, I think, but we are focusing on the second judge, Ehud, Judges 3, chapter 10. And this is what we read. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms, incidentally, it was Jericho. After it had been destroyed, the walls had come down, and uh, the settlement that sprang up then out of that was called the City of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent a tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about 18 inches. So it's kind of short. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have, a, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the kilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull out the sword from his belly, and the dung came out. Thank you. I think you've shared what we're all feeling right now. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Nehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirach. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him, and they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. We'll end our reading of the word there. Father, I ask you that you make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I titled the message this morning, Lefty and Hefty. <laughs> I hope that doesn't strike you as sophomoric or banal. But if that does, then you're going to be especially pleased to know that I didn't use the first title that I called to mine, which, uh, which was Eglon's Gut Reaction. And I, I <laughs> so I can see that you're all pleased I didn't use that title. So I'm just am trying to lay that out there. But the fact is that there are two outstanding features of our story. And the first is that Ehud was a left-handed man. And the second was that Eglon, as per verse 17 and others, he was a very fat man. And what I want us to do is consider the significance of each of these descriptors for us, each of these distinctions, beginning with Eglon, the king. And then I'm going to draw an application for ourselves. In our day... When fat shaming is rightly condemned as a form of bullying, here the Bible clearly ridicules Eglon as a very fat man. And I would suggest to you that the key to understanding this in our text is that Eglon was not the one who was being bullied. Eglon was the bully. In fact, he was far worse. And his obesity served as symbol of the tyrant That he was. Let's think about this story for a minute. Israel had been granted 40 years of rest after crying out to the Lord for relief. And the Lord had raised up Othniel, the first judge, to bring Israel that relief. And rest, of course, rest for the land meant rest from war, rest from calamity, rest for the land. That was God's blessing on the land, and so his blessing on the people. It was, after all, the promised land. But then, as we read in our text, Israel turned and did evil once again in the eyes of the Lord. What that means is they turned back to their, their idols and all the depravities that come from those idols. And basically, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to idolatry, the The Baals and the Ashtaroth, these are the gods essentially of money, which is wealth, sex, and power. And so then they turn back to these gods. Then, in fact, all the depravities that follow from those commitments happen there, just like they're happening in the United States of America. And so the text says that the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power, One of the translations, power over Israel. And to achieve this, Aegon didn't simply rely on himself or on the Moabites, who weren't necessarily that strong as a nation in the first place, but he recruited the help of the Ammonites. And not only did he, not only did the, uh, um, there's Amalekites, I believe, is that correct? Amalekites, Ammonites, Ammonites, both. I'm on the Ammonites. Not only did they live next door to the Moabites, Just east of the Jordan and the Dead Sea, um, there was uh, uh, Ammon to the north, Moab to the south. They were related as descendants of Seth, but he also recruited the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, and the Amalekites had a history. They were always itching for a fight with Israel. They're the people who had attacked the rear of the column of the children of the wilderness of Israel in the wilderness. And that was where the aged were, in the back of the column, coming more slowly. That's where the sick were. That's where the infirm were. That's where those were who could not defend themselves. That's Deuteronomy 25. they made common cause and attacked Israel again with the Canaanites. In Numbers chapter 14. Now they're attacking Israel again with Moab in Judges chapter 3. Next they will attack Israel with the Midianites in Judges chapter 6. They were the perennial enemy of Israel. And for the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Amalekites, all to join forces and to attack Israel was a very serious <laughs> judgment and involved a marked setback. It almost was as if history was in reverse because Jericho had been the first city that Joshua had conquered when he entered the promised land. Now, as I mentioned, it was renamed the city of Palms as, as another settlement grew out of the ashes and the fallen walls. But now that city reverts back. It's taken back from Israel. It's almost as if history is reversing itself. And from there, from Jericho, the city of Palms, Eglon, received annual tribute from the defeated Israelites. Now the term tribute here is the one used in the law for offerings that were to be brought to the Lord. So when Israel had refused to give by way of honoring the Lord who loved them and in gratitude to God for all that he had blessed them with, the Lord was now taking through the king Eglon it was now taken from them by a pagan king and this is not the point of the sermon the central point of the sermon but I think it just has to be said we often hear you cannot outgive God that is I'm sure that's true we often heard if we do not give God his Sabbath we do not rest and worship the Lord as he calls us to do he will take a Sabbath from us and there's many ways he does that I believe that's true And I also believe that if we rob from the Lord what we are to devote to the Lord, we will not come out ahead. The Lord will take what he requires of us. And I don't think that's because he's mean. He owns the cattle of a thousand years on a thousand hills. It's, it's, It's nothing like that. He is training us. He is teaching us. He is discipling and disciplining us to be his people and to live as a people of faith. Well, what did this tribute consist of? Was it gold? Was it silver? There are probably maybe some, but not too much. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 8, the Lord described the promised land and the plenty of the land in this way. As a land of, you can count these out with me, wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and you shall eat, and you will be full. So what this tribute was that was brought to King Eglon was the fruit of an entire year's labor, carried on the backs of those who had produced it, of those who had worked for it. And imagine how humiliating it is, how demoralizing it is to have to bring all that you've worked for before this this king, this tyrant, and then bow and grovel before him as you present it to him. You give him the wheat, you give him your barley, you give him the wine of your vineyards, the oil from your olive groves, the pomegranates, the pomegranates, the figs, the dates, the other fruit. Imagine what that is like. And if you ask the question, well, now what did all that mean? What all that meant was scarcity, hunger, and weakness, in the land of plenty, and it meant an extremely well fed tyrant. In fact, an obese man, a very obese man, a man who indulged himself, a man who denied himself nothing, who took whatever he wanted from whomever he wanted it, for whom nothing was ever enough, whose God was his stomach, to quote a New Testament phrase. That's the image. We have here. That's the point that we're to see. The king Eglon was consumed with himself. And because he was consumed with himself, he would consume whatever and as much of and from whomever anything he wanted. So when Ehud drew that homemade dagger of his from his right thigh with his left hand and plunged it into the king's belly, you have to understand he was striking at the heart of his oppressor. The Bible, as we read Judges, it is history. It contains history. It's also theology. And it is in the form, remember, of literature. And it's important when we come to Scripture to read it and appreciate it and understand it as literature. So what then of the left-handed man? What about Ehud? Why Why is this emphasized? Well, there is a term in Hebrew that means left or turning to left. And you find it 54 times in the Old Testament but it's actually not used here. In fact, in this passage, the word left isn't found at all. It's the word right that is used. What is translated as left-handed is a Hebrew phrase that literally means bound or shut up in his right hand. So it's translated left-handed. What it means is that he did not have the use of his right hand. He was shut up. His right hand was shut up. It was bound. It was impeded. Whether he had any use of it at all, we don't know. But he had no effective or practical use of that hand. Now let me just remind you of something. You know the word dexterity. It refers to skill. If somebody has dexterity, they're skilled. Dexterity comes from the Latin term for right-handed. Or you're familiar with our term adroit, some of you, A-D-R-O-I-T also means masterful or skillful. That's the French phrase, a droit, which, is, which means to the right. I mean, even in the mid-1950s, researchers attributed left-handedness to perversity and negativity. Can you imagine that? In fact, there was a British psychology, psychologist named Cyril Burt. He described left-handed people as awkward and as clumsy. I don't understand it. (laughs) So here was a man with a limited use of his right hand, his skilled hand, the hand you would wield a sword with. And as a result of that, no one would see him as a threat. And that explains why the king was probably willing to dismiss his guards from his breezy upstairs room to hear this secret message that uh, Ehud said he had for Eglon. And what's more, not only would no one see him as a threat, no one would expect him to be their deliverer. No one would vote for him to be their, their judge. And that may explain why Ehud, everything the passage indicates to us is that Ehud made his own sword, it makes that clear, that included no one in his plan, that he was acting entirely on his own initiative. He'd not been recruited to do this. He'd not been asked to do this. He was a right-handed man, a left-handed man. So he's actually the perfect guy to be recruited to take all the tribute to the king because he would not be seen as a threat. And he was in charge of that. And So in verse 18, we read, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent Uh, On their way, those who had carried it, the people that he had come with him and and hiking all this tribute over, he sent them on their way, he gave them a head start so they could get away, in other words. And then he went out later as if he was going to go home himself. And verse 19 says, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, which wasn't far from the city of Palms, this is the phrase, he himself, that means he alone, he by himself went back to Eglon and said, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. Ehud was acting on his own. He, no one had put him up to be their hero. And now we've read the story, of course, and we know it, that when Ehud was alone with King Eglon, he drew out his homemade blade, he plunged it into the king's belly, so his fat covered the handle. Ehud left it there, the king's Spelled out. Uh, Ehud, uh, I'm sorry, King Eglon, essentially, um, essentially, um, well, never mind. Anyway, he died there on the floor. Ehud locked the doors to that room and he left. And I suggest, I mean, the reading of the text, what's implied here but not said explicitly, it was probably, don't be offended, please, it was probably the guards' noses that advised them that the king was alone using the loo. But when they finally entered Ehud was long gone, and the king was dead on the floor. And then Ehud rallied his countrymen with a trumpet. And he charged them. He said, follow me, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. And they did follow him, and they did attack, and they did destroy the entire army. And the land had rest for 80 years, which is twice as long as the next longest rest that came after any judge. So this really was quite remarkable. So that's the significance of what we're told about Eglon being a very obese man. That's the significance of what we're told about Ehud being a left-handed man. So what are we going to take from this passage ourselves? I'd like to draw your attention to one point in particular that I think is the main point of this passage. I hope you'll think with me kind of carefully about it this morning and personally about it this morning. God uses left-handed people. He uses the maimed. He uses the limited. He uses the weak. He uses the, he uses the unable. He uses the disabled. He uses left-handed people for his glory. Now, when God caused called Moses to go to Pharaoh, what did Moses say? He says to speak to Pharaoh. He says, I'm not the guy. My tongue is heavy. I don't speak well. God says to Moses, what do you have? In my hand, I have a staff. God says to Pharaoh, or God says to Moses, you'll devour Pharaoh's scepter with that staff. You're going to part the Red Sea with that staff. You're going to make a flinty rock break open with that staff, and it will flow with water and feed my people. God uses left-handed people. Our next judge in this series, who's that? Not a man, but a woman, Deborah. Very left-handed for her time. And it was through her appealing to an untested warrior named Barak and the marshalling of an ill-equipped force against an army of 900 iron chariots when Israel had none, 900 Bradley tanks that God delivered Israel. Who was the judge after Deborah? That was Gideon. And God made Gideon left-handed. He reduced his army from 32,000 to 300 to defeat the entire army of Midian. And what of Jesus, our left-handed Savior, who had no form, who had no majesty, that we would offer him our loyalty? He had no beauty that we would desire him over us. And yet he has come to reign through cross on which he was crucified and died and from which he was buried before he rose and was exalted. Think with me about the left-handed apostle, Paul, with those pitiful, weak eyes and that debilitating thorn in the flesh that God gave him. You understand? God uses left-handed people. In fact, at times, I just illustrate, he makes people left-handed in order to be useful to him. Because honestly, it is pride that spells the destruction and the death of the human race. It means the ruin of faith it means blindness to our sins pride means divorce from the one being who matters above all others pride is the guarantee of our eventual catastrophic failure not to mention many failures in this life remember how Paul characterized the Christians when he wrote to the Christians at Corinth he said God Referring to them, he says, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, why did Paul write this to the church? But that they be and that we be aware of ourselves because it is in this awareness that we realize Where our faith belongs, not in us, but in God who loves us and in the God who is merciful to us and in the God who gives us his Holy Spirit, who more than compensates for all of our weaknesses, beginning with our death in sin. Paul wanted the church to know what they're dealing with when they look at themselves in the mirror, when they deal with one another, not to take them down a notch but as a guard against that pride that is such a cancer in the human race. So it's not to knock us down that we're told this. It's so that we can be built up in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, can I add you? Can I add you to the list of God's left-handed? God's list of the left-handed. There's Ehud. He's there. You know, when, uh, when Hudson Taylor was asked, why did God choose you? How, do you th- why, how is it that God has used you to have the impact that you have had in China? His answer was that God knew I was weak enough. Can we add you to the list of the left-handed? Kurt's there. Klutzy left-hander never athletic, lousy back, prone to anxiety and self-doubt. You say, oh, Kurt, you're telling me too much. Oh, I have it to be actually. But you know what? This is the truth. That my very worst left-handed day with Christ is infinitely better than my best day without him. That is absolutely the truth. And I'm daily aware where my trust belongs and where my faith is to be. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I'm really good with that. And as much as I'm knowingly able, I want him to use me. And by his grace, because of his grace, because of his love for people, I think he does. Because what matters to God is not our strengths or our skills or our experience or our education. What matters to God is our faith and without faith it is impossible to please him for those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is the one who rewards he is the blesser of those who have faith in him that's the truth the church is for left handed people so (laughs) what about you lefty (laughs) What's your story? And I would say to you this morning that if you let your weakness be your excuse for sitting back, when the Lord says step up, you haven't learned the lesson of your infirmity. The lesson of your infirmity is to teach you faith. Not that you would hold back in fear, but you you would advance in faith. Not that you would be focused on your weakness or failure or disappointment, but that you would be focused on Christ. It is to teach us faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your mercy and your goodness to us in Christ. We thank you that when I am weak, then I am strong through Christ. We thank you that you love us this way. That you give us examples in Scripture of people who are left handed like we are. And yet you use them when they trust you. And it was teaching them faith that was the goal of your drawing their attention to their left handedness so they would know. Lord, help us as a church be very very left-handed, in a right-handed age. And we ask you, please, dear God, please, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.